An A321 crashes into the Margala Hills in Pakistan, far from the airport that the plane should have been landing at. How did a breakdown in crew resource management and not following instructions cause this aircraft to smash into the hills? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody, for episode 22. Whoop, whoop. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. I'm tired. That's how life is today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're a very talkative, loquacious bunch today. Oh, totally. But you're going to hear us talk. And actually, we're changing things up today a little bit. A little bit. Because um, I don't know how to fly a plane, basically. <laughs> um, and this report was difficult. Yeah, so today we're covering AirBlue Flight 202. This was recommended to us by Aquil. Oh, yeah. Aquil? Aquil? I don't know. I'm sorry. If we're butchering your name, we're sorry. But hey. I might butcher a few things when reading this. Anyway. Thanks, thanks for the recommendation. Also, he is from, he told us, Singapore. Singapore. So thank you for listening all the way in Singapore. Yeah. Tell it to all your friends. Yeah, so this crash is a little wonky. I will be reading the story, and Nick will be doing the investigation. Which is actually just the story, again. You're going to get to hear this twice, basically. AirBlue Flight 202 was a flight on July 28, 2010, on an Airbus A321, operating a domestic flight from Karachi to Islamabad in Pakistan. Turns out this is one of like their most frequent routes. I think it gets like 74 a week, something I'm like sure. that. There were 152 people on board, including six crew. The captain of this flight was Captain Pervez Iqbal Chowdhury, Chowdhury, something like that. <laughs> Way to Americanize it. Yep. <laughs> no, that that's me. I looked it up. Oh, I got it. Yeah, yeah. Chowdhury, Chowdhury. We don't speak that language. So uh, sorry. I think he's Pakistani. Okay. Mm-hmm. Though that name is Indian. Anyway. He was 71 years old with 25,497 flight hours. That's a lot. Only 1,000 of which were on the A321. The first officer was unnamed in this report. Don't know why. Um, But he was 34 years old with 1,837 flight hours, 286 of which was on the A321. So he was pretty new in comparison. The first officer was a baby pilot in comparison. The flight took off from Karachi at 7.41 a.m. local time with no issues. The Islamabad International Airport, their destination, was at the time a one-runway airport. I say that specifically because there is a new Islamabad International Airport that opened in 2018. The airport name switched over, so the airport in this incident is now known as Benazir Bhutto International Airport, but we will be referencing it as Islamabad for the purposes of this story. Don't mess it up. Anyway, the one runway was runway 30 in one direction and runway 12 in the other. Weather at the time was rainy and cloudy, which was information that was provided on the Automatic Terminal Information Service, or ATIS. ATIS. That was provided to the flight crew at 8.50, as well as that they would be landing on runway 12. Now, something unique about this particular airport. They did have an instrument landing system, or ILS, installed, but not in both directions. The ILS was only useful if you were landing on runway 30. If you were to land on runway 12, you would need to use a visual approach called a circling approach. 
This is actually far more common than you think. There's a lot of airports that only have one end with an ILS approach and the other end does not. Yes, but this airport only has run one way. Run, 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 run. Hey, out where I work, we, we have three runways, but only one ILS approach. Which yeah, one? but you also work at a tiny airport that's not international. It's not that tiny. It's not that tiny. It's one of the busiest airports in the world, and we only have one ILS approach. Yes, Which but it's not international. Which runway? 3-5 right. Is that the big one? It is. Okay. But it's only one end of it. I know. So, I'm going to describe this to you as best as I can verbally, but we do have pictures of this particular maneuver on our website, because it is not the most intuitive thing to describe. This particular approach is done by using the ILS on runway 30 to gain visual contact with the runway, with flaps at 3 degrees and landing gear down. Once the runway is in sight, the crew is to level off at 2,510 feet, either left for a right-hand approach, or right for a left-hand approach. Really confusing. <sighs> That's what took us 20 minutes to figure out. All the while maintaining visual contact with the runway. This direction is followed for 30 seconds before another 45 degrees performed to become parallel with the runway, maintaining the 2,510 feet of altitude. Once the plane is perpendicular with the beginning of the runway, or what is called the abeam threshold, a timer for 20 seconds is started. After the timer is over, a 90-degree turn is performed onto the base leg perpendicular with the runway and towards the runway. The autopilot is turned off at this point. The final turn is then performed with flaps at full to line up with the runway, reducing speed to the approach speed, and finally descending below the 2,510 feet down to the runway. So, during this particular descent at 9.04, the captain requested from radar control to approach by turning left once they saw the runway and then making all right turns from there, which is called a right-hand approach even though his first turn is to the left. The radar controller did not agree to this, as weather was obscuring the southwest side of the airport. The crew acknowledged that. At 9.33, at 4,300 feet, the radar controller cleared Flight 202 to descend to 3,900 feet for the ILS approach to runway 30, followed by the circling approach. Two-ish minutes later, the crew once again asked how's the weather right downwind, asking for the other direction, because they didn't want to go the way the radar controller told them. To which the controller responded that the right downwind was not available, and only the left downwind was available, as he said before. At 9.37, the tower confirmed the safe landing of a plane from a competing airline. They also called out that they had visual with Flight 202 and to report established left downwind with Runway 12. 30 seconds later, air traffic control suggested to fly a bad weather circuit which is just a circuit at an altitude low enough to stay below the clouds, and they did not receive a response. Two minutes later, the, air, the tower controller asked if the crew was visual and didn't receive a response, so he asked again six seconds later, and the first officer finally responded, Air Blue 202 visual with ground. This was the last time they heard from them. The A321 crashed 9.6 nautical miles away from the airport in the Margala Hills. The aircraft was completely destroyed, and everyone on board sustained fatal injuries. The report said at the beginning, May Allah bless their souls. Which was interesting. I've never seen anything like that in a report before. No, but... It is... Was this report based in Pakistan? Yes. yes. Then that doesn't surprise me. The following is a direct quote. It was not possible to carry out detailed autopsy or post-mortem examination of the body of Captain because of the severely charred condition. However, post-mortem of the body of First Officer 
could not be conducted as the body was collected by Airblue management prior to arrival of investigation team on site and handed over to his father for burial. Whoa, 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 whoa! Back up! No, 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 no! No! <laughs> yep. No! Yep. yep. We've said before, okay, don't take anything from a crash site. Don't touch. That includes a body. Don't touch. What the actual what? <laughs> Why? Don't touch. Turns out they didn't need it for the investigation. No, it was pretty clear but, what happened. You'll what? find out later. That's fine. But what if it was? <laughs> like, hello? Don't touch. No touch. You don't take stuff from the crash site, which I said, including a body. Like, hello? Dude, I, I don't know. There was a fire at the site, as is kind of expected. But firefighting equipment was not able to reach the hills. Because it was hills. But the rain put it out. It was fine. It was nonstop raining. I thought that if there was a fire due to jet fuel, it had to be smothered. It couldn't be put out with water. I don't know. That I literally just said what the report said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, just, uh, mm. This report was interesting. I'll put it that way. Both black boxes were recovered and sent to the BEA in France for analysis. This was because Airbus is was in France. In France, yes. It is pertinent. The analysis was conducted by both the BEA and the NTSB, but that and the final review of the report were their sole contributions to this investigation. So the two of them did submit letters saying, yeah, this report was fine, make these couple of changes, you're good. No aircraft or engine part was required to be sent to the NTSB, BEA, or Airbus. That said, there was no investigation section to this report because everything they needed to know was in the CVR. Which Nick will go over, because I don't know how to fly a plane. I feel, okay. wait, I have a feeling, I have a feeling. Did they go right when they were told to go left? No! Not exactly. It's, it's actually quite a bit more complicated than that. Oh, but good. You'll, you'll, you'll see exactly why this was horrible. <laughs> awesome. Actually. Keep in mind that the captain had a lot of experience, and the first officer didn't. Who was flying? The captain was the pilot flying. Okay, well that then that shouldn't matter as much. Okay. Except that I guess the person navigating would be the first officer. Yes. That was not the issue. That was not the okay. issue. Then then tell me I'm if the you, curious. If you thought you're mad already. Oh, good. <laughs> there's gonna be some um 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 foreshadowing to Tenerife next week. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? Post, you're not wrong. Post shadowing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, now I'm now I'm very interested. What what happened? Prepare to be very angry. Oh, good. <laughs> Everyone, you have now had a rage warning. <laughs> this is your rage warning. You that's have going, been warned. That's going on a t-shirt. Rage warning. <laughs> rage warning. Going back to the very beginning, I'm going to read you now the story as it was told by the CVR. So you you picked out basically everything having to do with air traffic control and an outside view of this. But now I'm going to tell you the details of everything that happened in between, including the air traffic control. In the cockpit. Dun, dun, right. Dun. So they departed Karachi at 7.41 a.m. At 7.52, the captain was testing the first officer of his aviation knowledge while being served tea and croissants by the cabin crew. And he used, quote, harsh words and snobbish tone, which is against company policies. And this is only 11 minutes after takeoff. Oh, I don't like this. I already don't like this. Wait, they were on takeoff? 
They were. This was 11 minutes after takeoff. Shouldn't they be in a sterile cockpit? And 11 minutes after takeoff, they're over 10,000 feet. I can guarantee that. So, no. Okay, well... <laughs> they're probably fine to have a conversation. And he's just being rude over tea and croissants. Yep, over tea and croissants served by the cabin That's crew nice. to them. That's nice. Yep. The captain continued to test the first officer in intervals for about an hour following that takeoff. Being extremely rude the whole time. Why? Yep. What does it matter? <laughs> he's in the aircraft. He was hired by the company. He's qualified to fly the airplane. He's qualified. Quote, after the intermittent humiliation sessions, end quote, the first officer was reluctant to speak or challenge the captain, needless to say. Oh my gosh. No. No, 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 no. Oh, it gets so much worse. No! <laughs> <laughs> I can already I already can figure out what happened. Continue. Alright. <laughs> the crew retrieved the ATIS information at eight fifty AM, the ATIS information we talked about earlier, and learned that the runway in use was runway one two and the captain was the pilot flying at the time. This was at hundred and fifty nautical miles out, they were still at cruising altitude. The crew retrieved weather information from other nearby airports, and the captain seemed cautious about the weather. The captain was also found to be confusing their departure airport with their arrival airport, as they had similar codes. Okay, pause. (laughs) He's the one being snobby, Uh and he was mixing up airports? Uh Uh-huh. Excuse you. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. First of all, if you're going to be snobby about anything, make sure that you're an actual expert before you start getting snobby on other people. Yeah, he was confusing the two airports because one is their code was Juliet India Alpha Papa, while the other one, the Islamabad where they were going, was Bravo Bravo India Alpha Papa. So they both end in India Alpha Papa. But they have different beginnings. Yes. He was also confusing some other landmarks nearby. Yeah, he's also 71 years old. So he has dementia. I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> if he we'll has never dementia, know. he shouldn't be flying an airplane. We will never know. However, if you've had so... Even if you're 71 years old. My grandfather is almost 80 and he's, you know, he's sharp. He can figure out the difference between landmarks. Anyway. I, I don't know. I, I feel know. like... <laughs> sorry, but age only takes you so far. So obviously this airline didn't have a restriction because in the United States it's 65 or nothing. I didn't know there was an age restriction on pilots. Uh huh. It makes sense because most people, you in the United States, you can retire at the age of sixty-five. A lot of people don't. Like my grandfather, like I said, is almost eighty. He drives yeah. a bus, and he's still driving a bus. He does it part time. He doesn't do it full time, but because he'd get bored. Well, and and it's it's his escape from my grandmother. <laughs> we won't get into that. <laughs> but I mean. He can, so therefore he does. But well, it's interesting. It would make sense to me at a certain point why they'd be like, yeah, nope, sorry, you're done flying aircraft. Because your, your eyes start to get bad, and your hearing starts to get bad. and Well, and they, I mean, the, a lot of the airlines, they are talking about upping the age because they are having a tough time with a lot of pilots are retiring and they're not getting new ones. However... This is why you shouldn't. Right. Well, yeah. And just the same... The thing is, a lot of those pilots can still go on to do other piloting jobs, or do something else, of course, but you can go on to do other piloting jobs that aren't airline transport. Yeah, you could be a trainer. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You could be a trainer, you could be be a flight instructor. Yeah, right, a flight instructor, you can be 
Um, you can work for like some charter companies. You can work for, you know, a lot of different, a lot of different commercial aviation where you, you make money still as a the pilot. Simulators and yeah, like there's a lot of stuff you can do that isn't commercial airline traffic. Yep. Knowing the weather conditions and given the ATIS information about which runway was in use, the captain prepared to fly the circling visual approach on a nav mode. Nav mode in the autopilot is a computer-driven form of navigation based on a programmable computer in the cockpit called the FMS, or the Flight Management System, which will automatically chart courses and execute maneuvers based on manually entered data, such as waypoints or markers on maps. So, you know, when you look at a map, you might have waypoints and intersections and markers, and there there are different points along the way that you could pick, and he decided that he was going to try to fly this approach, essentially, using using nav mode so that meant that he probably intended to enter different waypoints to follow instead of doing a hand-flown visual or even just heading driven so selecting a heading in the the autopilot he literally was going to put in points for the computer to automatically fly to instead in doing this the captain asked the first officer to enter waypoints that were not part of the circling approach but much further beyond that circling approach, and the first officer did not challenge this decision. The captain then briefed the first officer of the plan for the approach on a right-hand downwind that put them several miles further from the airport than the published information that was the established procedure for the airport. Even though they were told they had to go left? By this point, they actually hadn't been told yet. Oh, well, so then did they just never change the waypoints? So, we'll get into that. Or not get off nav mode? You'll find out. Great. The captain requested a right-hand downwind on runway 12, runway 1-2, for a visual approach, but the approach controller did not agree to this due to the procedural limitations, quote-unquote. But the captain vocalized his concern about the weather on the left side, the left downwind, I should say, which is actually the right side when you're approaching the airport the direction they were heading. I know, this is all very confusing when you talk about right and left. So, so a right-hand approach is an approach that makes all right-hand turns. This is the one that he wanted to do, which would require him, from the direction he was going, to approach runway 30, turn left, and then make all right-hand turns to circle around back to the runway. They were telling him to do the opposite, to take a right-hand turn once he saw the runway, and then take all left-hand turns. To circle back to the runway. So it's really, really confusing to talk about. But imagine basically, yeah, literally, you have the runway in the middle, and you draw two circles, one on either side, so that you make, or two ovals, basically, so that you go end to end. And this is, this is going to sound really backwards, but basically, when you're looking over the top of the runway, and let's say, because right now we're looking actually at the map of this airport, and we have the the two blue ovals, basically they make almost this heart shape from their approach. The runway is down the middle of this heart, and then you have the left side and the right side. However, from them, they're approaching from the, the bottom of our screen, and then in order to make a right-hand approach, they would actually go left first, and then they make all those right turns to come all the way back around in for 12. To make a left approach, they actually turn right first, and then make all left turns back. So it, it they just, were supposed to do 
He wanted uh, to do the the left turn first and then all right turns, but they were told to do the right turn first and all left turns all the way back around him. So the dotted one is the one they were told to do. So basically they wanted to go to the south side of the airport and they were told to go to the north side of the airport. Okay, even if that was the case, the approach that they put in the waypoints is not what they asked to do. So, correct. I'll get into that. Okay. Let me let me start clearing up some of this confusion and make it even more confusing at the same time. Thanks. You're welcome. This <laughs> is why he's doing this and not me. Yeah. At 8.58 a.m., the aircraft began descending. At 9.04 a.m., the approach controller informed the crew to expect the ILS to runway 30, then circle to land on runway 12, then informed the crew that the right downwind was not available because of the clouds, which they had already told once. This is now the second time. The captain acknowledged this. At 9.05 a.m., the crew discussed several waypoints beyond the circle, their normal circle-to-land approach, way beyond. At 9.33, the crew were cleared by the approach controller to descend to 3,900 feet for the ILS capture. At 9.35 a.m., the aircraft was on the ILS approach at 3,700 feet, descending, when they extended the landing gear. At 9.36 a.m., the crew asked the tower controller one more time if the right downwind was available. However, this time it was the tower controller rather than the approach controller. But the tower controller again told them that this was not available and to do a left downwind instead, so make a right turn first. To which the crew acknowledged. At 9.36, the captain wanted to descend to 2,000 feet, but the first officer reminded him of the 2,500-foot MDA, or Minimum Descent Altitude, that might sound familiar. We discussed that in the last episode. We did! Yes, we did. Can we... Not the... Yes, the last episode. I'm getting confused. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about also how this pilot was hyping on his first officer, Mm -hmm. and he seems to me like he has no idea what he's doing. Yeah, basically. They've been told three times now they cannot do a right-hand approach. And now, and then they 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 keep asking. The answer is no. And he wants to descend below what they are supposed to descend. And to me, it's just like I have no idea what I'm doing. And getting reminded by the first officer that hey, we can't go below 2,500 feet. At least he said that. At least he said something because of the humiliation that he was put through in this flight. I'm surprised he even said that. Think you're mad now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Commence more rage. Okay. Commencing rage again. (laughs) You have been warned. (laughs) I don't want to hear any comments about how anybody hates my rage. You've been warned. So continuing the story. At 9.37 a.m., the aircraft leveled out at 2,500 feet, like the first officer corrected the like captain. Like should have. At that point, autopilot 2, there were two autopilot functions both selected at the same time. Autopilot 2 was disengaged, leaving only autopilot 1 on, which is okay. That's all they really needed. And the crew flew the aircraft on a constant heading until the VOR labeled Romeo November. 
VOR is a very high-frequency omnidirectional range. Basically, it's a, a radio frequency transmitter that tells airplanes, you are in this area, and you you listen to that frequency, like it listens to that frequency and takes you, it does, has a radial around it, takes you to it. Got it. So they were flying directly over this VOR, essentially, at the time. Immediately after that, air traffic control confirmed the safe landing of another competing airline's airplane at the airport. Which put pressure on the captain. To make the approach to the landing. Just land the airplane. I know. There's no pressure. Just land the stupid airplane. Immediately after that, a right turn was commanded of the autopilot by the crew, and the altitude was lowered to 2,300 feet, violating the MDA, the minimum descent altitude. A moment later, the captain asked the first officer to activate the secondary flight plan in the flight management system, or FMS. So now he's decided to go with the waypoints he selected. Which, if you're looking at the map that's on our website, is the yellow line. And it is way beyond the little circle to land they were supposed to do. Yeah, it's nowhere close to it, in fact. It's five nautical miles out from the runway. Versus 1.3 nautical miles out from the center line of the runway. Which means they can't keep a visual contact with the runway, which is the whole point of doing a visual approach is keeping visual line of the (laughs) runway. You are correct! Hello. Congratulations. (laughs) After breaking off of the ILS, or instrument landing system, the captain ignored the tower controller's option to perform a bad weather circuit by saying, let him say whatever he wants to say. And the captain had opted to fly the waypoints without informing any air traffic control at all. So, in other words, they were telling him to do the circle to land. He had decided he was going to do the waypoints and not tell anybody. And air traffic control had even gone as far as to offer them the option to lower their altitude below the clouds to the point where they could visually keep contact with the runway. And he decided to ignore that. You mad, bro? You know I'm mad. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, our post episode. Our post episode is going to be fun. Uh... Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Check out Patreon if you want to hear more rage. Unfiltered rage. Unfiltered rage. Very unfiltered Uncensored. rage. That. At 9.38 a.m., the captain said that he was going for nav mode, but the aircraft continued flying on the heading mode he still had selected. The first officer reminded him, okay, sir, but are you visual? So saying, or do you still have visual with the runway? And the captain said, visual, yes, okay. <sighs> The airplane was now three and a half nautical miles from the center line of the runway, so well beyond the circle of land, when it should have only been about 1.3 nautical miles, with a heading of 352, and a term called a beam the numbers for runway 12. So in other words, parallel with the numbers for their touchdown point. So they're flying at an angle away from the airport. However, they are parallel with where they are supposed to be touching down behind them now. The crew then selected a heading of 300 through the autopilot, which would have put them parallel with the runway. At 339 and 43 seconds, the lateral mode was finally changed to nav. He had to pull a knob to do it, and he had forgotten to pull it prior. Yep. So it finally changed to nav mode, which meant that now it would actually take their decision to go to waypoints. At this point, the aircraft was only one nautical mile south of a no-fly zone, and air traffic control instructed them to turn left in order to avoid it. Which is the... There's a circle on the little picture that we have. It has slashes through it. It's like, don't fly here. Is there a reason it's a no-fly zone? Doesn't say. Okay. A lot of it's usually military-based. They're all okay. over the world. 
special events or military or diplomats, things like that. There was one time Nick and I went flying with his dad and it was a no-fly zone over the Broncos stadium because mm-hmm. they were doing... They were doing flybys. Yeah. Uh, and it was quite close to us. <laughs> well, and then to be honest, any time there is a sporting event in the United States, a major sporting event, there are no fly zones. Now, they're only to certain altitudes, so you can fly over them at really high altitudes. But, but like, for example... All through baseball season, all of the baseball stadiums just have, like, permanent no-fly zones until the season's over. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) Because there's games, basically, every day. At 9.39 and 58 seconds, the aircraft was now five nautical miles north of the airport when the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System, with a predictive feature, began sounding terrain ahead, to which the first officer immediately reacted, saying, Sir, there's a terrain ahead. Sir, turn left. The captain was now very jittery when he spoke, with many recorded indications of confusion, frustration, and anxiety displaying further breakdown in awareness and professionalism. At 9.40 and 10 seconds, air traffic control asked if the crew had a visual of the airfield. The crew did not respond, but the first officer asked the captain, over the CVR this is heard, what should I tell him, sir? Immediately afterward, the air traffic control asked if they had visual with the ground, to which the crew responded, Air Blue 202, Visual with the ground. Does that even mean? Were they even visual with the ground? Would they we have don't... even been <laughs> able to see the ground? We don't know. The first officer again alerted the captain, saying, Sir, terrain ahead is coming. The captain responded, Yes, we are turning left. The aircraft was not turning left, however. Only the heading knob was being adjusted to the left by the captain. Oh. My. God. To indicate that he was attempting to make a left turn. However, the autopilot was still in nav mode, rendering that knob ineffective. Turning a heading switch is not flying the plane! (laughs) Even if you're in a freaking Airbus, you can fly it on your own. Two more enhanced ground proximity warning system warnings sounded, but the crew were unaware of their geographical location and did not seek help from air traffic control. At 9.40 and 28 seconds, the mode was finally changed back to heading mode, but the airplane was on a heading of 307 on its way to a waypoint, and the captain had adjusted the knob to 087 without looking to it, which meant that the shorter distance to head was actually a right turn, so the aircraft's autopilot began turning the airplane right instead of left towards the Margala Hills, at which point the predictive EGPWS... Enhanced ground proximity warning system. That thing. Sounded terrain ahead, pull up, a final warning to them, basically. At 9.40 and 30 seconds, the first officer stated twice, Sir, turn left, pull up, sir, pull up. At 9.40 and 33 seconds, the thrust levers were moved forward, but not to go around power, and the autothrottle was disconnected. Two seconds later, an altitude of 3,700 feet was selected on the autopilot, and the airplane began to climb while still turning right. Six seconds later, the thrust levers were set back to climb to the climb detent, and auto throttle was re-engaged, and the altitude was adjusted back to 3,100 feet, so it was adjusted down. However, they weren't even to 3,100 feet yet. Two seconds later, the first officer said, Sir, pull up, sir. Five seconds later, the autopilot one was finally disengaged, as the airplane was at 25 degree bank to the right, and the captain used full stick and rudder pedals to the left, They were at 2,770 feet and still climbing at this point. The plane managed to climb to 3,090 feet in a 52-degree bank to the left. And some nose-down inputs occurred at that point. The captain continued to turn the heading bug without looking at it or pulling on it, rendering it useless. The captain is heard asking, why is the airplane not turning left? 
followed by the first officer saying, Sir, we're going down. Sir, we're going down. The airplane struck a hill at 9.40 and 49 seconds. The GPWS had sounded a total of 21 times. Yep. After more terrain and pull-up warnings. You're kidding me. 21 times. After the first time, they should have made some sort of difference. When it said terrain ahead, uh, I'm not in the right spot, obviously. I need to turn. The thing is, is the captain had complete control over that airplane and... The best that the first officer felt he could do was say something. But Instead he... of taking over the aircraft and flying it himself. Right. Which is what you sh- what he should have done. Yep. But he had no say, confidence to do so because he was berated the entire flight by the captain. Even so. Like, I understand being berated to the point where you're humility, hum- the humiliated. But it's in your training that if you know that you're getting put in a dangerous situation. I know. That you say, my aircraft, and you take over the controls. Period. At at this point, the first officer probably felt that it would have been more dangerous to be in an argument over the airplane and a fight over the controls than it was to pretty much let him fly it into the ground. So... Because he didn't know they were that close to terrain either. Well, and here's the thing, right? When When it sounded the first couple of times, I can see why he would be like, okay, sir, you need to go to the left. Like, we need to turn left. We need to go to the left. But after, like, I don't know, the 10th, the 12th time it sounded, it's like, clearly you're not going to do what's proper. I'm going to take over the controls of the aircraft to save my own life. Yep. At that point. Never mind the 150 other people in the plane. Right. Like, that. And guess what? And people died. Like, And people died. I haven't said that in a while because we know, haven't we, had one in a while that's had been knew, this bad. We knew you would say that about this one. It, it just aggravates me because that captain is like was so grotesque about how he's so experienced and berating the first officer during flight. And then they get to the point where they're supposed to be doing a visual approach. One, he doesn't do the visual approach. Two, he flies the aircraft almost into a zone they aren't supposed to be in. And three... It gets to a point where the GPWS sounds, which it shouldn't at any point during during, during the flight, but during descent. And it happened 21 times before he decided, I should fly this aircraft away from whatever we're going toward. Don't ask air control or um, ATC to help you. Don't ask tower control to help you. Yep. That's overconfidence to a ridiculous degree. To and a deadly degree. And it's unnecessary. And the the thing is, they flew the airplane. Th- technically, they were putting the airplane in a far more complicated approach than they actually needed to execute if they had just done the normal circle to approach for runway 1-2. It wouldn't have taken them but maybe a couple of minutes to do the actual circle to, to land approach for runway 1-2. And... It's a really, really simple procedure in reality. It calls for only two time chunks, a 30-second time chunk and a 20-second time chunk, and then it's just circle around visually to land, literally. You basically just, from there, hand fly it in. Well, and I have a, what my ind- indication of that is, is he didn't want to do the work to hand fly the aircraft to land it, is what it sounds like to me. I'll just have the airplane do it for me. And he didn't trust the first officer enough to do it either. Right. So it's like, well, no. Like, that's not how you land at this airport. I'm sure you've landed at this airport before. Not quite sure why you decided to do that when that's not how you land on this runway. 
Period. Right. Okay. So. On that note. Now that you're enraged. There's lots of findings. Um, but I'm going to read a lot of these verbatim from the report. But I, I will read through uh, some of these. And I will, I will try to sum them up as I go through them. But there's some interesting ones in here too. As a matter of fact, the, the first one I will read, it says, uh, It was conclusively established that neither the captain nor the first officer was fasting during or 12 hours before the flight. So that was an interesting little call out. They it must be hungry. obviously a, a religious religious oriented statement. I don't know. I've never heard that uh, before. I know that from a history class in mm-hmm. college that I think it's during Ramadan. It is during Ramadan. They're not supposed they to They don't eat in public. Wow. Um, and is a lot up. of oh, if you are practicing, you don't eat, you fast. But if you're non-practicing, well, you can't. You're not even allowed to eat in public. Well, there's actually a lot of religions that still practice fasting regularly. It's not even just a holiday thing. It is a regular practice. Mine's holiday. They found that the weather conditions, especially at the destination, were marginal, and these deteriorated weather conditions were found to be a factor in the causation of this accident. They found that the captain's behavior toward the first officer was harsh, snobbish, and contrary to established norms. The undesired activity of the captain curbed the initiative of the first officer, created a tense and undesirable environment, and a very conspicuous communication barrier in the cockpit portraying a classic crew resource management failure. Crew resource management. Yep. Contrary to the air traffic control briefing and established procedures for circle to land of runway 1-2, the captain opted to fly an approach on nav mode and asked the first officer to feed four waypoints. The first officer did not challenge the captain for his incorrect actions. These waypoints were not at all for that approach. The intentions of the captain to fly the waypoint-based approach was not known to the air traffic controls at any stage of the flight. Due to this violation of established procedures, the flight management system created positions were way out of the protected airspace, lying into the Margala Hills. So basically, the waypoints that he selected were almost all the way in the hills anyways, and there's what's called a protected airspace literally around the airport that said, like, this is the safe place to fly within the procedures of the airport. Within a certain altitude and all that. Yeah. The captain, they found that the captain had a very strong fixation for landing through the right-hand downwind for runway 12. This despite the fact that this was a his vast experience of flying... He knew that uh, right-hand downwind for runway 1-2 was not allowed by procedures there. And this time, even low clouds were reported in that area, meaning that it was not available, especially because of that. They found that the captain showed signs of anxiety, preoccupation, confusion, and geographical disorientation in various phases of flight, especially after commencement of descent. They found that the captain had prior knowledge of the decision by two captains flying ahead of him, while the captain of one airplane managed to land... In the third attempt, however, the captain of a China Southern flight decided to divert back to their airport in China. Jeez. Yeah. Yep. However, this pressure from the actual competing airline that did manage to land is likely what pushed this captain to keep going. That a, is their finding. He had a competitive edge. Yep. Who cares who lands first? It turns out some people do. Just get the airplane on the ground. They found that during the descent, the captain's request for right-hand downwind to runway 1-2 for a visual approach, the request being contrary to the established procedures, was not agreed to by radar, which is saying by the approach controller. 
They found that during the ILS approach, the captain's second request for the right-hand downwind for runway 12 was also declined by air traffic control due to procedural limitations and the fact that it's just purely not allowed. Like, dude, stop trying. <laughs> yeah. They found that after a delayed break-off from the ILS at the minimum altitude, due to poor visibility, the captain turned right to about 352 degrees and then, contrary to the published procedure, did not turn left to the parallel on the course of the runway at the 1.3 nautical miles off the center line. They found that while flying the northerly heading, the beam downwind, the captain descended below the minimum descent altitude of 2,510 feet to 2,300 feet. The first officer remained reliant on the captain's actions and did not challenge the deviation from procedures. They found that the captain failed to maintain visual contact with the airfield in violation of the published procedures. They found that while the aircraft was flying in the general direction of 352 degrees... It went very close to the no-fly zone in the north. They found that when the air traffic controller did not find the aircraft on downwind or final approach, he sought approach controllers an approach controller's help on a landline. The aircraft was re-identified by the approach controller close to the no-fly zone. As advised by the approach controller, air traffic control instructed Flight 202 to turn left to avoid it. However, the captain had already initiated the left turn onto 300 degrees using the heading mode. So all of this to say that, quite literally, air traffic control didn't even know where what, he was. What he was doing. Because he was outside of their airspace trying to use these waypoints. And they're like, uh, can you see the runway? Can you see the ground? They had to call literally a different controller who actually had him on radar to figure out where he was. Also, can we talk about the fact that his waypoints would have put him through the no-fly zone? Yeah, exactly. He would have had to fly through it if he had used the waypoints the way he intended. They found that at 9.39 and 58 seconds, 70 seconds before the impact, the first enhanced ground proximity warning system warning of the terrain ahead started sounding, meaning that the EGBWS worked exactly in the manner for which it was designed. Which is good. That's good to hear. Yep. Like, uh, no, that wasn't the problem. He just ignored it. Yep. And didn't do anything. Yep. They found that AirBlue 202 was asked by air traffic control if they had contact with the airfield. There was no reply, which was, or if they had visual contact, they don't say that. If they had visual contact with the airfield, which to which there was no reply by either of the aircrew. But the first officer asked the captain in the cockpit, what should I tell him, sir? Indicating possible loss of visual contact with the airfield as well as geographical disorientation. They found that the protected circling airspace to fly at MDA was available till 4.3 nautical miles from the airport, to which they were well beyond. Yump. Contrary to the recommended procedures, the aircrew took the aircraft out of the protected area to 7.3 nautical miles from runway 12 threshold. They found that in the ensuing self-created emergency situation, the captain unknowingly failed to do even the simple things such as engaging the heading knob by pulling it to activate the desired mode. They found that during the last 70 seconds of the crash, despite calls from air traffic control and the ground proximity warning system sounding 21 times as terrain ahead, including 15 times for pull-up, the captain continued to take the aircraft on its fatal journey. The first officer also informed the captain four times about the terrain and terrain and warning and asked him at least three times to pull up. But the captain did not pull up, nor did he apply the take-off-or-go-around power thrust uh, contrary to the established operating procedures. And they found that the first officer kept watching the captain's failures and unsafe actions, such as inducing steep banks and continuous flight into hilly terrain at low altitude and poor visibility, and failure to apply power and pull up. Unfortunately, the first officer remained impassive 
and failed to assert himself due to non-congenial environment in the cockpit. So in other words, saying he was not comfortable in the cockpit, so he didn't feel like he could do that. Which is completely the fault of the captain. Yes. They found that while the first officer, sensing imminent and acute danger, did shout twice in the most disappointed, frustrated manner to inform the captain that the aircraft was going down, but unfortunately still failed to take over or override the airplane. They found that the aircraft was fully airworthy, and its power plans, control surfaces, enhanced ground proximity warning system, and associated systems were all functioning normally at the, impact, at the time of the impact with the hill. They found that there was no, no evidence of sabotage or incapacitation of the aircraft systems. It wasn't a mechanical failure. Nope. It was purely pilot failure. And they found that because the Islamabad airport being a busy international airport, being a busy international airport of the country... The instrument approach procedure was not established for runway 12 because of which circle to land for runway 12 was in use. That was the last of the findings. I, I don't see how that's... I mean... Yeah, that doesn't really matter. They had a procedure for that. So they didn't necessarily say probable cause in this report. They called it finalization. Ooh. AirBlue crash has been finalized as a case of controlled flight into terrain, or CFIT in which aircrew failed to display superior judgment and professional skills in a self-created unsafe environment. In their pursuit to land in inclement weather, they committed serious violations of procedures and breaches of flying discipline, which put the aircraft in an unsafe condition over dangerous terrain at low altitude. So, so everything we said. Kind of poorly worded, but yes. I think this was probably translated. Yeah, probably. Okay, so recommendations. There aren't as many of those as there were as findings. So, and these are verbatim as well. They recommended that all crew be rebriefed on CFIT avoidance, or controlled flight into terrain avoidance, and circling approach procedures. Is this like any crew that flies into Islamabad, or is it Air Blue, or? Uh, they didn't say. It oh. just literally says all air crew to be rebriefed on CFIT avoidance and circling approach procedures, and a strict implementation of this procedure to be ensured through an intensive monitoring system. They recommended that aircrew scheduling and pairing being a critical subject be preferably handled and supervised by flight operations. Basically, they're saying pilots get to play preferential treatment as long as they work with flight operations. Why don't you just learn to be a human being and not be a jerk to the person you're in the... Anyways. They recommended the implementation of an effective crew resource management program be ensured and that the syllabus of the crew resource resource management training be reviewed in line with international standards. They recommended existing aircrew training methodology be catered for standardization and harmonization of procedures. That one's kind of weird, but basically it's kind of saying the same thing. Be nice it, to each other. And making it standard. They recommended human factor slash personality profiling program for aircrew be introduced to predict their behavior under crises. That's not something that was implemented, was it? I don't think so, probably. I wouldn't see any airline, to be honest, putting that in play. I mean, unless the airline's absolutely huge, they really wouldn't take the time to like go psychologically into how is this person going to, you know, this specific person expected to react in this situation. I mean, they're a pilot. Okay, if they they spend their entire life training in these things, they are expected to behave in a way. Regardless of their personality type. Yes. They recommended instrument landing procedures for runway 12 be established, if possible. Please? Yeah. I feel like it's needed. Yeah. If it's that close to, it to hills and stuff, it's it, just... But here's the thing. They got a new airport. Yeah. Well, so it wasn't even worth yeah. it. Yep. Now it's part of an airbase, kind of. Yeah, it's just mainly Air Force. 
They recommended a safety management system be implemented in the air traffic control for the spirit of the ICAO document, document 4444. <laughs> 4444. So basically, four, four. per international standards, they want there to be an implementation of a safety management system in air traffic control. They want air traffic control to literally have a way of saying, hey, something's wrong. Air, I feel like air traffic control should have reacted sooner than they did. Yes, when and they started harder. When they saw them like starting to go off track, they should have been like, uh, hey, hey, hey. what are you when doing? They were, when they were more than twice the distance away from where they should have been, going for four times as far, <laughs> they probably should have said something. Like, uh, hey, what are you doing? That's not the approach pattern for this airport. Yeah. They recommended, and at the time, obviously, they didn't have a name for the new airport yet, so in here it is listed as, they recommended the new Islamabad International Airport be complete and made functional on priority. Which it was. <laughs> Literally, yes. they made a whole a whole recommendation of, like, make the airport faster. Do oh. it. Make a new airport. Do it now. Faster. They recommended a visual augment system, or approach radar scope, be installed in the control tower to monitor the positions and progress of aircraft flying in the circuit. So, basically, they want a, a better radar system in the tower to better track airplanes. Yeah, I feel like that would have helped. Well, they would know where they were, at least, and be like, oh, you're getting close to some uh, some terrain there. You might want to take a turn. And by the way, when they've said in the circuit the whole time, circuit is what we would call in the United States traffic pattern. Yeah, in the pattern. In the pattern, we would say. They recommended reviewing a review of the existing regulations for the compensation and their expeditious reward to the legal heirs of the victims be insured. That one's really poorly worded, but basically they're saying they recommended figuring out how to, you know, pay the families. Oh, okay. That was really poorly put. I, I, okay. I don't know. I feel like that did need to be part of the no, report. No, it's not normally part of a recommendation. That is something that is legally handled elsewhere. They recommended information to the public on the progress of the investigation process through the media be trained slash qualified investigators of SIB be insured on regular intervals. So basically they're saying there was a lot of information that was poorly given out to the media. SIB is... The CAA is part of the SIB. Okay. So this investigation was performed by the Pakistan Civil Aviation Authority under the Safety Investigation Board. Safety Investigation Board. Okay. So they're saying basically that the Safety Investigation Board was giving out bad information. Why? To the media. Okay, we'll get it, we'll get further into that in a minute because there's some other things about this report we'll talk about afterward. Let me finish these last few here. They recommended the NDMA be tasked to acquire in-country airlift capability for removal of wreckage from difficult terrain like Margala, etc. As an interim arrangement, some foreign sources be earmarked for making such an arrangement on as and when required basis. So basically, they didn't have the resources needed to get the wreckage out. They recommended the Civil Police Department be tasked to work out and ensure effective coordinating and on-site security arrangements of crash aircraft wreckage at all the places, especially remote and difficult hilly locations. So people don't just walk off with a body? With a body, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hello? Not okay? <laughs> yep. And finally, they recommended the Environment Control Department be directed to recover the ill effects of deterioration damages caused to Margala Hill due to the crash. That one's kind of weird. They're saying they want to restore the hill. Back to the so, body thing. It says that the body was collected by Air Blue officials. Mm-hmm. By I feel management. Like, 
and hand it over to the family. I feel like they should know better than to be like, honestly, here's the body of your son who should be part of the investigation. To be clear, if there's one thing they should do as a management to an airline, it is stay as far away from the crash site as possible. So they don't get more publicity well, on because here's, what happened? Because here's the thing. Because if even if they're pulling a... You know, it's bad enough that they're pulling a body out of there. Don't get me wrong. But for them to be on site at the crash, that looks really bad because they could be covering something up. Yeah. And that would immediately be what I would investigate. Why were they there first? Speaking of kind of sketchy things, um, there were some suspicions of this whole investigation. It turns out that this particular authority that produced this report was not qualified to do so, reportedly. Yep. Though... And this report, it kind of shows in this report because there's a lot of weird things going on. There's actually a few times where there's some bias, even though they have a very clear statement at the beginning that says, this is not to apportion blame, which is a normal ICAO statement, but... My only rebuttal to that, though, well, not that specifically, but the fact that it might be... I don't know, bad, is that it was reviewed by the BEA and the NTSB. Mm -hmm. So they said it was fine. It was up to their standards. Kind of. Both the BEA and the NTSB put way more into their reports than what was in this report. But there are letters from each with recommended revisions, which were taken into effect. And then after that saying, as long as you do these, we think it's sufficient. Even though it was a really weird report. So they figured out a way to make it work, basically. Yeah. But Um, all of this... Circling back to the compensation, um, I did find on the Wikipedia page, the most reliable of all sources, Mm -hmm. that the initial estimate for compensation by the Air Blues insurer, the original estimate was about $11,000 per victim. Um, The Pakistani government declared the day after the crash would be a national day of mourning and announced compensation of about $5,800 to the family of every victim. U.S. President Barack Obama issued a statement confirming that two Americans had been on the flight and expressing condolences and stated that our thoughts and prayers go out to all those touched by this horrible accident. So this was the first crash of the A321 aircraft type. by the way. This was the very first crash of the A321 as a body type. However, it was the second deadliest in its history up to this point. And this was pretty deadly. What was the first deadliest? Uh, To be honest, I'd have to look it up. She's doing some boop-de-boop. So in March 2003, there was a Trans-Asia Airways flight of an A321 that collided with a truck on the runway. Yeah, but that was that was the first hull loss, but that was not the first technically deadly accident of the A321. But the deadliest one was in 2015. Oh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I was confused by what you were saying. So that one was a Metrojet flight mm-hmm. belonging to a Russian airline company. Mm-hmm crashed into the Hassana area of central Sinai, Egypt. Yep. There were 224 people on board. No one survived. Yep, that's the one. Newer reports say it broke up midair and that ISIL had claimed it brought down the aircraft. Yikes. Anyway. That was... What What are we covering? <laughs> <laughs> that was Air Blue, Flight 202. Okay. Thank you for the recommendation. This one was interesting. It was a little bit of a tough cover, but we, we did it. Yeah. I think. <laughs> I'm, we did I'm, it in a little different way. I'm still kind of surprised this happened in 2010. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Which is weird to say it was 10 years ago. Yeah, it kind of. feel like 10 years ago. <laughs> but it was 10 years ago. Yep. 
That was the summer I s- we started marching band. It was the summer we started marching band. Oh, God, that's a weird thought. Okay, moving All on. All right, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into that in the post episode. Okay, y'all. Have a good week. Talk to you later. Keep your air speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.